Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It is quarter past five. Oh my god, I'm here past five o'clock! <laughs> You'd think I'd work in the software. You'd think I work in the software industry or something. And I'm just heading home through a nice driving bit of sort of rain that is going on uh, up here in Canada, which means that you better strap yourselves in, brothers and sisters, because this might be quite a long podcast. It seems that pretty much whenever rain occurs in Canada uh, or any sort of conditions other than pure sunshine that people, uh, they sort of forget how to drive. I mean, people have a tough time remembering how to drive uh, to begin with, and I'm still working on finding a way to pin that on public roads. Uh, I'm I'm working on it. Uh, There is actually, I think it's in Denmark, there's a set of roads. Oh, look, look at that. I have a tangent, and I'm not even a minute into my podcast. I already have a tangent. Yes, indeed, it's going to be a bumpy ride. (laughs) But there's a road in Denmark where... There were way too many accidents occurring, so of course one of these mad libertarian uh, kind of guys uh, came along and said, you know what we need to do is we need to get rid of all of the um, the lane markers, we need to get rid of all of the uh, stop signs, we need to get rid of all of the uh, speeding signs, and uh, basically they got rid of everything. No traffic lights, no nothing, and of course... As you can well imagine, now that you're becoming somewhat acquainted, um, if you're not well, if you weren't already well acquainted with the theory, that the number of traffic accidents accidents has gone down precipitously, right? And in Canada here, we had a very bad blackout a couple of years ago, where all of the traffic lights across the entire city, and I think it was southern Ontario, it all went down. And what uh, happened was, of course, that everybody ended up without traffic lights, just sort of navigating the roads themselves, without street lights, without traffic lights, or anything like that. And, of course, it was a uh, pure riot of peaceful intentions. And, therefore, uh, <laughs> this is sort of the spontaneous order that comes about. And people don't just become sort of deranged and insane uh, because, oh, my God, there's no traffic lights. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to close my eyes and drive. <laughs> and people don't do that, right? They... They try and come up with a better way of doing things, so I think that's sort of that's sort of interesting. All right, that killed two minutes, and I'm sure it's only going to be an hour drive, so what else can I think of? Let me tell you about my day. Well, I woke up and... Anyway, so what I'd like to talk about today is the problem of monopolies. Uh, and uh, monopolies, as you know, is uh, uh, the plural of the board game that we all enjoyed as children. And we want to make sure that uh, monopolies in a free market uh, have negative incentives for being created, right? And people have this fear of monopolies, which is kind of funny, you know, obviously. I mean, it's kind of funny for me because the government is the biggest and most coercive monopoly, but that is the agency that we turn to to protect ourselves from monopolies. I just think that's very, very funny. Um, You really can't invent this stuff. Like if you were a comedian with a sixth sense of humor... You just could not invent what people uh, pass uh, off as philosophy and political theory these days. I just think that's just hilarious. I mean, (laughs) we have, I think it's at Harvard, we have this thing called the Kennedy School of Government. The Kennedy School of Government. Now, of course, the uh, Vietnam War that Kennedy, an Eastern liberal, that Kennedy started resulted in the deaths of millions of people. And it's going to be as funny and as sad in future generations for them to look back upon us and see this Kennedy School of Government as it would be for us to look back and see, you know, the Pol Pot Institute for Human Rights 
or you know the Stalin Institute of a well-fed of a well-fed population, <laughs> or the Hitler Studies for World Peace. I mean, it is just going to be very funny. Now, before you get all crazy and say to me, "Are you comparing uh, Kennedy to Hitler?" and the answer is yes, I absolutely am comparing Kennedy to Hitler, and I'm sorry if you don't like it. But uh, you sort of have to tell me then exactly how I'm supposed to differentiate the different gangs of thugs that are around. And if one thug, uh, one mafia head, is somewhat more constrained in his ability to brutalize his domestic population because of a historic and and uh, largely uh, uh, sort of spread out set of gun ownerships, then uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to ascribe any specific virtue to that uh, mafia head. Uh, I'm just going to say, well, he's not as bad as the other one because his own population hasn't been legally disarmed. So, uh, you know, just just in case you were wondering where I was going with that, uh, to call a Kennedy, uh, a Kennedy only doesn't look like a genocidal murderer if you don't happen to live in Vietnam or, I guess, certain parts of Cambodia. Uh, then, uh, you know, he looks like a, a chisel-jawed, thatch-headed fellow with a pretty wife who sadly died in mysterious circumstances. But if you're one of our pro, poor brothers and sisters out there over in, uh, in Cambodia or over in, in Vietnam, uh, or, of course, if you're one of the soldiers who was dragged over there by force to kill or die, then he probably has a slightly different aspect to you, right? It's this... Oh, can you hear the rain? Man, oh, man. This is quite something. I love this rain in Canada that comes along in spring. It's, it's really fairly close to driving through a car wash, so... Uh, I'm sorry if this is uh, if you can hear this in the background, but I'm sure it makes a nice change from the sound that suddenly has been coming up recently, and I'm not sure why. It sounds sort of like a a castanet-bearing rat gnawing at the wires, and I'm not sure exactly why it's occurring. It's something to do with the wires rubbing against the headset, but you know, I'm sure that my little technical difficulties are the main reasons that you tune into these podcasts, just so you can hear me ramble on about oh, I did this during the day, and oh, I'm having a problem with my sound. So let me return to something slightly more interesting, which is back to monopolies. Uh, can, you, can you feel the padding in this podcast? Can you feel it? Uh, this is going to end up uh, looking like uh, the Michelin Man, right? My podcasts normally, normally lean like a gymnast, but this one's going to be overfed to bursting. So uh, monopolies in the free market, uh, everybody's worried about them, and, and of course that's one of the reasons that we turn to government to save us from the problems of monopolies. But I sort of want to go through the economic stuff of this because, uh, you know, I've had some requests for some more economics articles like somehow me pitting you against your family doesn't seem to be quite as exciting as people uh, to people as me talking about abstract economics, which I can completely and totally understand and sympathize with. It's nice to take a break from family stuff and from personal stuff and to look into abstracts. So let's do that today. And I promise not to bring up your family. OK, well, maybe yours, but not yours for sure. Um, but uh, looking at monopolies in the free market, let's look at some of sort of the trends that uh, go on. Now, some of the famous quotes that you probably know of, and I can't repeat, repeat them verbatim because I don't speak enlightenment, but um, Adam Smith said something like, there is no gathering of manufacturing concerns which is not uh, put together for the express purpose of cheating the public, right? This is sort of one of these quotes that uh, people put and it's uh, okay last segue uh, okay for them for the moment uh it's just so funny to me and sad that people quote adam smith like they're proving something or quote murray rothbard like they're proof well murray rothbard said or steph said you know to <laughs> to put a pygmy next to a giant right or steph said this or or von mises said that or or you know or the marxists say well in marx you read and the christians do this all the time 
and I was just listening to a Christian podcast for by an, a Christian anarcho-capitalist torturing both Christianity and anarcho-capitalism to make the two fit together for some rather interesting psychological reasons that I hope someday to uh, ask him about directly, because I do find that quite a fascinating juxtaposition. Um, I'm a pilot, and I also fly a ma- magic carpet. <laughs> so you'd think the one would sort of preclude the knowledge of the other, but, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, certainly always, always, always happy to be corrected. So let's have a look at the free market, its tendencies in regards to monopoly. So let's say that, that uh, you, I, and five other guys uh, have carpets. Now, all we, all we do is manufacture carpets. We're big in the carpet industry. And we get together, and we're the only people in the carpet industry, let's say. You know, we'll make this as simple as possible. Uh, we're the only people in the carpet industry. And lo and behold, we um, get together in some shady nook, and we say, okay, we're going to double the prices of carpets. And this is the, the predation that we anticipate uh, bringing to bear on the public interest. We are just going to hose everybody for everything that uh, we can get a hold of from their pockets because we're going to double the price of carpets. Now, some of this stuff is pretty obvious. Some of it, at least for me, wasn't. So I'll spend a brief bit of time on the obvious stuff and then we'll go into the not-so-obvious stuff. Well... The first and most obvious one, uh, most obvious thing here, is that, well, uh, <laughs> you're either going to, somebody's going to import carpets, right? So if the price of carpets doubles, like Monday morning, $20 carpets are now $40 carpets. Why? Because we're in 1942. I don't know where to get these prices from. Last carpet I bought from Christina's office was $500. But, uh, okay, so it's gone from 20 bucks to 40 bucks. So the first thing that the people who buy carpets, like there's the middlemen, right? The people who make carpets and the people who, the middlemen and then the people who buy the carpets because you don't buy a lot of carpets from eBay. So the first thing that the uh, middlemen are going to do is they're going to phone these guys up and say, well, what the hell are you doing? And they're going, well, sucks to be you. We're like assuming there's no sort of antitrust laws, no Sherman antitrust laws or whatever. They're going to say, sucks to be you. <laughs> they're going to rub their evil little capitalist mustaches and say like Mr. Burns, excellent, excellent. We're doubling the price of carpets. Excellent. Actually, that just sounds like a vaguely fruity Bond villain, doesn't it? <laughs> Got to work on my Mr. Burns. You can't talk about capitalism unless you can imitate Mr. Burns, because sadly, that's where the majority of people get their idea about uh, ideas about uh, capitalists from. So uh, then the, the middlemen are going to say, well, we don't like that. And you say, well, sucks to be you. We're the manufacturers. We have everything, so we're going to double your prices. Well, of course, the first thing that any competent middleman is going to do is going to is going to appeal to friendship. He's going to he's going to whatever, right? But let's say that all five of you, all five of us, stand firm, and we're gonna we're gonna shaft the public with carpets, uh, carpet prices, and then uh, they're gonna make a phone call overseas, right? So they're gonna call up to Canada, and they're gonna talk to some guy, and he's gonna say, uh, "Yeah, my carpets are twenty bucks, I guess. With shipping, it might be like twenty five bucks. I mean, let's just say it's very expensive shipping. Maybe the government is still running the shipping. We don't know." So then they're going to say, okay, well, you guys are 40 bucks, and you guys are 25 bucks. So uh, we're going to pull all of our orders from you guys charging 40 bucks, and then we are going to go to the Canadian guy who, with shipping and all that, is going to uh, charge 25 bucks. Now, there is going to be a short-term shortage as this sort of realigns itself, because the Canadian guy is going to have a heck of a lot more orders than he can uh, stand. 
right? So he's going to have to ship stuff in from overseas. He's going to have to hire, I guess, additional capitalist street urchins, urchins with blistered fingers to work all night under oil lamps to produce more carpets because, you know, that's really what's going to happen. And then he's going to ship these carpets down to the States or wherever for 25 bucks. So the, the, there's a price increase. There's a shortage of carpets, 25 bucks, so, so, so. Now, of course, anybody who uh, is going to uh, be selling the raw materials to these carpets, for these carpets, the wool, or I don't know what the heck carpets are, the alpaca, <laughs> I don't know what carpets are made of, really. Um, but somebody, whoever is selling the raw materials to us, the U.S. carpet manufacturers, is going to be fairly nonplussed, because our sales are going to plummet. So the guy who sells us the raw carpet bits, to use a technical phrase, is going to be kind of nonplussed. He's going to say, like, cut your prices, I'm not happy, you're not, you're not moving any product. And so I'm not selling to you. Our employees are going to get unhappy because we're not able to sell product and so on. And, of course, everybody who supplies the carpet bits to us, uh, powdered carpet, I think that, yeah, that's right, powdered carpet, uh, who sells that to us is immediately going to start shipping it to the guy in Canada because he's going to have a huge demand for powdered carpets so that he can make them. And, you know, actually, come to think of it, he's probably going to ship the powdered carpets while our own water down here. Oh, economics is so complicated, isn't it? So... Basically, our whole chain here is going to be messed up, right? So the guys who supply us the uh, raw materials for the carpets are going to be shipping them to Canada. The people who take our trucks of carpeting to sell them in the stores or wherever are now going to be taking shipments from Canada. And, of course, the Canadian guy is going to be hiring like crazy. And the first thing he's going to do, of course, now he recognizes that there's this enormous uh, opportunity in the States because... People are still grumbling that they have to pay 25 bucks rather than 20 bucks for a carpet. So the first thing he's going to do is open up a store in the United States. And so the price is going to go right back to 20 bucks. We're going to be out of business, and this guy is going to pick up pre-trained employees, which we had to pay to train, right? We, we hired these people off the streets. We trained them how to make carpets. Now this new competitor is going to come in with all of our pre-trained employees and all of our pre-set-up um, uh, value-added resellers and, and, and uh uh, shipment lines and all that and relationships with stores who are all, you know, everything that we built up slowly and painfully, and I know this, I've done this a couple of times in software, it is a long and painful process to get people, to get the right channels opened up to get your market, your stuff out to market. So we're going to give all of that stuff up. This other guy is going to come down from Canada, just blow us away. Now, of course, we could say to this guy in Canada... Hey, you know what? Uh, you, you join with us and you charge 40 bucks and we're all going to make a killing. And the guy from Canada is going to say, I don't really think so because like in three weeks you guys are out of business and I'm going to inherit all of your pre-built uh, relationships and customer bases and supply chains and uh, manufacturing bases and so on. In fact, I can even buy your factories pretty cheap because it's not like uh, somebody who's going to want to convert them to some other use is going to be able to pay more because they're going to have to pay for the cost of converting it. So it's that much less valuable. And so there's tons and tons and tons of reasons as to why uh, this stuff is just not going to hold. It's just not going to hold. That is, of course, in a free market. In the state-run society, oh, my friends, there are so many dark tales that can be told about the problems of monopoly and how they get solved by a state-run system. Oh, it is a tale full of woe and blistered consumer wallets. And so let's start talking about, and we'll, we'll get to the sort of internal problems, even if you can get rid of external competition in a sec. But if you have a state society, right, then the first thing that you're going to want to do 
is you're going to want to restrict people from entering into your marketplace, right? So you're going to start to put on these things like when the guy from Canada starts to uh, undercut you as you've raised your price, doubled your price from 20 to 40 bucks, the guy from Canada starts to undercut you and suddenly you're going to be all going off to Washington and saying, oh, these, these American jobs, these fine American citizens, they're going to lose their jobs and, you know, these connect bastards up there with their igloos and their elk and their... Uh, beer that doesn't taste like water and they're going to be taking away American jobs. And then you sort of fly the flag and you buy American, proud Americans and all this kind of stuff. And of course, the first thing, all you're trying to do is shaft the American consumer, right? I mean, these economic patriots are always, you know, they use the flag to cover up a rather unpleasant maneuver with the, with the consumer underneath the flag, right? Ooh, that flag is rippling very rhythmically. It's like, yes, that's because the consumer is getting done in. And... So they go running off to Washington. They want to keep the exports out. They want to do this. They want to do that and so on. So let's say that they can do that. They can ban all the exports or they can put some prohibitive tax, right? So we, we double our prices, but we get a 200% tax put on carpet imports to save American jobs. And lo and behold, no imports come in. And so now it's just we five who are um, have, who have a monopoly on, on, uh, on the carpet prices. Now, of course, there's absolutely no reason why this stuff should come from outside. Because, you see, the, the guys who make the base, whatever it is, to, to make carpets, the thread, the, the orphans, I can't remember. But the people who make uh, the carpet bits are going to need some place. And, of course, now the carpet prices have gone double, the demand for carpets has gone down considerably. Because people are like, oh, well, let's just, you know, wait it out. Especially in goods, which is an optional purchase, Right. I mean, gasoline, uh, you've got a car, you've got to get to work, you've got to drive your kids from, from here to eternity, it seems. And so you can't really do much to avoid buying gas, right? You can do a little bit. But something like a carpet, well, you know, you can make the, the existing one do for a while. I guess if you're buying a new house, you kind of have to have something. But it's going to be a lot, of, uh, it's a lot of optional purchases. You know, I guess we can live with slippers and, you know, socked feet for a while. We don't need a carpet or, you know, I can live with that stain. We can rearrange the furniture. So when the price of carpets goes up by double, people are just going to buy fewer, right? So, so of course, the, the, the people who are selling you the manufacturing bits for carpets are going to want someone to buy more because their demand, demand for their stuff has gone down. So then, you know, Joe American is going to stand up there somewhere in Utah and say, hey, uh, I'm going to now uh, make carpets and I'm going to uh, charge uh, $20. And he might be able to charge even less, right? Because the people who are supplying all of the supply chains are all pretty desperate at this point, right? The, the carpet salesmen and the <laughs> carpet cleaners and the uh, carpet installers and those who make the manufacturing bits for carpets and the supply chain and the truck drivers who drive carpets around, they're all going to be pretty desperate because they're facing a pretty catastrophic decline in demand for their services. So they're probably going to offer you some pretty good cut rates. So I think that it's actually quite likely that you could sell a carpet as an entrepreneurial Joe American new guy carpet on the block th fella, uh, you're going to be able to sell your carpets for $15, $16, $17. And, you know, the price will then slowly creep up as this new supply chain asserts itself and so on. So that's great. You're all happy, right? Now, of course, if you are a monopoly, uh, this is what happens, again, in a free market. So if you're some evil monopolistic guy and there's a state around, well, what do you want to do? Well, the first thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that carpets are licensed. Carpet selling, carpet making, carpet distribution, whatever it is, it's licensed. And, of course, the way that you do that 
if you, you just come up with some scare stories, you know. Children drowned in plush carpets. <laughs> you know, pets lost forever. <laughs> it's like going down a staircase, walking into this carpet. I can't find anything. <laughs> you know, I, I keep snagging my toenails, and then I get fungal rot. <laughs> you know, this is going to be something. They're going to make carpets and carpet fibers cause X, Y, and Z when not properly installed by a government-licensed mechanic or something like that. Uh, you know, I really should have picked something not like carpets, but something that actually understood because these metaphors are quite silly. But I think you get the idea. <laughs> so, so they're going to come up with scare stories about carpets are dangerous unless licensed by qualified trains, blah, 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 right? Like plumbing. You've got to have a license for plumbing because it's only been around since the Roman times and, you know, you need to buy those special pants that hang halfway down your butt. And so they're going to need to get licensing in place. And the way that they do that is all these scare stories. They leak them to the media. They get this. They get the government. They, you know, or, or what they'll do is they'll find some place which, you know, there's been an industrial accident in some store of some some place that manufactures carpets or you know <laughs> substandard <laughs> substandard carpets give newlyweds rug burn <laughs> or something like that they're going to come up with some horrifying scare story about why carpets are just way more dangerous than anybody ever thought of before and the only way to protect the gullible public from the massive genocidal WMD style dangers of unlicensed carpets is to regulate and you know get licenses and have training courses that go on forever um, I mean, I know someone who knows someone who's trying to get a job as a forklift operator, and they have to go literally through 1,500 hours of training. 1,500 hours of training to run a forklift. I mean, what is it, 20 minutes? Don't run anything over and turn around when you back stuff up? You don't need that to drive a car, for God's sakes. Or a plane, I bet. You could probably get into a plane and drive it your own with less than 1,500 hours of training. Training, not even operating. So, I mean, But this is how people keep other people out of the industry, right? You can't do it without the government. So, of course, you're going to want everything to be licensed. And then you're going to want the licensing process to be very expensive, very bureaucratic, very Byzantine. And then you're hopefully, I mean, if all goes well, if you can really get the miracle of state violence to work on your behalf, then you're going to want to get a professional association put together that has the right to license practitioners that you as an industry are in control of. And, you know, the AMA, the plumbers, you know, the, the unions and these kinds of things, or trades, trade unions and so on. Because if licensing is something that the government controls, then the government's people are going to be bribed, right? And you're, you're going to lose control of that whole process. There's still going to be some economic thing at work. And so what you're going to want to do is create a licensing that is then controlled by you as a professional body. And that is going to be just magic. That is going to be sweet magic and money in your wallet. Because now, nobody can come and compete with you unless they apply to you for a license. And all you do is you say, oh, yeah, carpet manufacturing? Oh, man, it makes brain surgery look like playing the spoons. So you've got to do 1,500 hours of training, and you've got to put up a license for $50,000, and you've got to do this, and you have to have this, and you have a union, and you've got to have the health and safety and the environmental regulations. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, that's for all manufacturing, which is why people who used to be in manufacturing are now in dumpsters and cardboard boxes and welfare offices. And so you're going to want all of this stuff to keep potential competitors at bay, to keep everybody out there who might conceivably be able to come in and undercut you. You're going to want to keep those people out of the market, and your friendly neighborhood government will be more than happy, more than happy 
to comply. Well, why? Well, because the government gets a pretty good deal out of these licensing things, too. Some of the licensing fees go to the government. The government gets all of the wonderful world of inspectors, right? So if you, even if you do manage to buy a carpet license or whatever to manufacture and transport carpeting, then the government has to go and inspect these things, you see, because a license just isn't enough. You have to have inspectors. You have to have bureaucracies. You have to have legal cases. You have to have paperwork. It has to go into the federal registry. It's Oh, man, it just makes, you know, I think it actually spontaneously gives bureaucrats erections, even the female ones. It's very subtle, but if you look closely. And this is, it just makes them drool. It makes them happy. I think uh, it is the wind beneath their wings, this kind of stuff. And so very quickly, you get this slow and suffocating layer of difficulty that comes along that just makes it like, it's like, you know, in those dreams where you're trying to get somewhere and there's no gravity and you're bouncing a lot or or dreams where you're sort of trying to run in water and it's just uh, it's tiring and it's exhausting and it's, it feels futile. Well, you know, this is the this is the sort of little landmines of boredom and frustration and irritation and expense that litter the road to riches that you could get to very easily in the free market by setting up some sort of competition. This is what companies do like it's so important to understand we don't have anything to do with capitalism anymore except in certain pockets like there's some of it in the uh in the software sector i don't know some maybe biochemical i don't know what's in the other sectors maybe some uh, actually i can't think of the medical sector has really got much of it at all but what we talk about i mean whether it's defense contracting or it is uh, some sort of union thing or it's something to do with uh, preferential uh, legislation or something to do with uh, corporate taxes or something to do with uh, corporate welfare or keeping exports out. or I mean, there's so little left in any transaction of the free market anymore that, you know, you'd be kind of surprised. What I've been meaning to do for a while, I don't know if it's, any, if it's out there anywhere, but I'd sure appreciate it if you could let me know. I've been meaning to for a while. Try and figure out that when you buy something for a dollar, how much is actually going in overhead, bureaucratic tax political overhead and how much is actually being transferred from one person to another, like to their bank account. And I, I got to think it's no more than a quarter on the dollar, but I could be wrong, right? So we're down somewhere low along those lines because, you know, when I buy a, a comb for a buck, okay, let me, let me pick something more likely that I'm going to buy for a buck if you've ever seen my picture. If I'm going to buy some chrome polish for a buck, then, uh, you know, i got to pay the corporate taxes of the person I'm buying the chrome polish from. I've got to pay the income tax for their workers. I've got to pay the social security tax for their workers. I've got to pay all of the inflated energy costs for their heating because we can't drill in the Arctic and there's all these restrictions on creating refineries in America or wherever. I've got to pay for the environmental legislation compliance. I've got to pay for health and safety compliance. I've got to pay for their bribes to the government officials. I've got to pay well, you know, either in terms of campaign contributions or wherever. I've got, to, like, I've got to pay for all of that stuff. So the amount of money that's going, and of course, what I'm paying with is everything that's had that deducted from my pay. So I got to think that no more. I, I would be surprised if it was more than a dime to 25 cents. And I would say probably on the lower end of that. I could be wrong. And you know, count the national debt in all that too, right? And so there's just very little left of what we call the free market. I mean, the, the only thing that's left is the innovation from the past, right? So when you talk about what we have as an economic system right now, it's pure mercantilism. It's pure, pure, pure mercantilism. It's pure state manipulation. It's pure 
everybody's grabbing at the gun in the room, right? Everybody's grabbing it, turning it, pointing it, and, you know, I mean, they're, they're all pointing it mostly at, at us, right? Occasionally they point it at each other, but there's very, very little left of what we would actually call capitalism uh, left in, in this. So this is sort of where we're at now. We're a lot further along than what I'm talking about in this kind of continuum. So you've got your nice juicy licensing and, and you've got all of these restrictions and you, you, you've got a, a, an industry uh, sector or an industry organization that controls the licensing, so the, the carpet union or the carpet manufacturers association or whatever. And now you've got a lot of money coming in because you finally achieved this nirvana which allows you to charge 40 bucks a sweater. And yes, you've had to spend some money to bribe the politicians and get where you need to get in terms of legislation, but you don't have any of the costs of enforcement, right? The consumers are hosed in, in so many ways, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, sort of four main ways that I can think of. I mean, the first is, obviously, the price has gone up. Uh, the second is, there's just less innovation, and there's less competition, and there's less whatever, right, going on, because nobody has any incentive, really, to do that, because competition is down. Uh, the third is that they have to pay for the costs of enforcement. I mean, there's insult to injury, right? Not only are you uh, screwing them for higher prices, but you're also screwing them through the tax system to pay for the enforcement to keep everybody else out, all these licensing restrictions and, and uh, tariffs on foreign goods and so on. And you're charging them for all of that. And there was number four, which I can't quite recall. Maybe it'll come to me later. You never know. Uh, maybe. So the other thing that uh, is, is, is happening... Once you get this in place, once you get this system in place, and it's going to take constant monitoring, it's going to take constant bribery, and of course you're going to have other areas of interest that are going to be competing for the politicians' time and energy. But this is where you get just these amazing monopolies. And if you look in sort of pretty much every Western economy, you can see these unbelievable monopolies. I mean, obviously farm is one of them, steel and oil production and... Uh, Areas of food production like um, sugar is a huge one. I mean, the import duties on sugar are enormous, which is, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons why everybody's had to switch to corn syrup and crap like that, which is much worse for your body and much harder for your system to shuck out without uh, complaint. So it's another reason why people are getting kind of chunky. So you get this kind of stuff going on in the economy, but then... Let's say that there's five people left standing after this elaborate and choking web of state violence has settled on all potential competitors because you've got this licensing situation and all that. You still have a problem. Even with all of that state protection, you still have a problem. And this is your problem. There are five of us. There are five of us. And I don't know what you are charging. Right, so we all say, ah, let's clap hands, my brothers, and let us shaft the consumer and charge $40 a, uh, a carpet, even though our costs, including all our political mumbo-jumbo, is only $25. Ha-ha, we will retire to Spain and feast upon wine and kumquats for the rest of our life. Well, that's all well and good, but when you and I and the other three guys go back to their offices, oh my heavens, is there a temptation afoot for them. And then temptation is simply this. Okay, we've all made an agreement to do 40 bucks for carpets. Do you know, if I go to $39, I am going to make a killing. Because I know, I know that everybody else is selling it at 40 bucks. 
So I sell it for 39 bucks, 38 bucks, something like that. My God, am I ever going to make a killing? Because I know what the price of my competitors is now. And that is an enormous problem. This is the fog of war, which I mentioned in a couple of podcasts ago. This is the problem of the fog of war. I know this because I do a lot of competitor bids, a lot of competitor presentations. And the fact that you don't know what your competitor is charging is pretty important. And it's really good for the client because you're going to err on the side of caution. So I sold a software system recently. Uh, it was pretty good, I guess. I mean, I got a pretty good price for it. It was about 150 grand all told. But then I found out that it was replacing a system that was 300 grand. So I knew, you know, I found out sort of afterwards that there was wiggle room, right? I could have charged more. As they say in the business, I left some money on the table. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I look at it as plus 150, not minus 150 from 300. But you could look at it the other way, and it's important to know. But... Of course, when you say to the client, uh, how much is the system that I'm replacing, they're not going to tell you. And it was a private, it was a custom-built system, so I couldn't even find out through market research. So you're not going to get those kinds of answers. And so not knowing your competitor's pricing or not knowing the cost benefits of you relative to everybody else, it's kind of important to keep that stuff close to your chest while you're negotiating. And so to me, it's important to have as a price mechanism that benefits the consumer a lack of knowledge about your competitor's pricing. If you know exactly what your competitor is charging, then of course you'll charge them minus 5% and knock them out of business and match their feature sets and sell your strengths or their weaknesses. I mean, this is a, there's a reason why you don't get all the answers from a software company right up front because they don't want you blabbing to competitors and, you know, there's a problem. Right? There's a problem with this kind of stuff when you're in the business. And it's delicate because you've got to get enough, give enough information that people want to buy your system, but not so much that your com competitors can figure out exactly what it does and either reproduce it or just knock you out relative to selling their strengths to your weaknesses. And this is all very exciting stuff in the business world. I love it to death. I think it's very interesting. And sometimes you make the right guesses, and other times you just go over, right? I mean, you, it's a gut, gut instinct thing. So, I mean, the other thing, I mean... You, of course, part of the license fee you're just selling to try and get the repetitive revenue in terms of support fees and maintenance contracts and so on. But there are other times where you guess over, right? So the times where I've put in contracts more early in my career before I learned all of this stuff. But there's times when I've put contracts in where, yeah, I put them in for 100 grand and our competitor is like 30, 35K. Well, <laughs> you know, we may be a good system, but that's a pretty hard sell. And then you've wasted time, right? Because you haven't um, spent your time replying to or submitting an RFP or hopefully politically negotiating an RFP through because, of course, if you don't actually have any input to the RFP before it comes out, you have like a 3% chance of winning. Like, it's lunatic how um, how bad that is. So you've not been putting your efforts in the right way, uh, right direction. You've actually been going in the wrong direction, which is a double negative, right? You didn't get what you wanted, and you didn't get something else that you could have could have got if you'd gone in the right direction. So anyway, the philosophy of software sales is probably not also what you have... Uh, uh, tuned into these podcasts for, although I think it's sales is an endlessly fascinating topic, but uh, it, that may just be me, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore, other than to say that the fog of prices, the fog of war in regards to prices is really essential and really benefits the consumer because people are constantly concerned about um, overpricing themselves relative to competitors, so they aim a little bit lower and that benefits the consumer. Now, if all five of us carpet manufacturers have gone in and said, ah, we're going to charge 40 bucks, then, of course, we each know what the other one is charging, which is fantastic for the consumer. 
we each know what the other is charging. And so there is an enormous temptation to undercharge just a little bit because that is going to scoop you so much business it's ridiculous now everybody who's in that professional association as they clap hands and swear an eternal fealty blood oath of brotherhood in manufacturing and predation on the consumer then they each know as they leave the room that there's an enormous incentive for the other guy to screw them and there's an enormous incentive for them to screw the other guy now, I don't really believe there's that much screwing in capitalism unless you can prostitution. But in this particular instance where you're trying to get this whole monopoly thing going, there's a lot of screwing going on, right? I mean, you, it really is a den of thieves at this point, only because of the political aspect, not because they all want to get together and raise prices, which is just a great way to destroy a business, as I talked about earlier. But each of these people are now in a blood oath, den of thieves, evil cabal situation because they have conspired to keep other people out of the market. They have conspired to bribe politicians and to get their way politically. They have got licensing. They have got uh, unions. They have got just everything that you could get, get everything that they could get their hands on. They have made uh, it as difficult as possible through the force of the state. Uh, to get anybody to charge a reasonable price for carpets and they've screwed the consumer and they've screwed potential competitors and they've screwed their employees uh, and, you know, this, that and the other, right? So this is a black gang, a gang of black guards for sure. And it's a pirates, right? Pirates without the cap and the sea shanties. And so um, as they walk out, they all know that they're a bunch of, bunch of crooks. That, that have leaned upon the state to do their dirty work and shafted the consumer. Now, given that this is the company that you're keeping, that all five of you have decided to take this route of screwing the consumer through politics, of course, there's not a lot of trust in the room, right? And there's even less trust when people leave the room because everybody knows that everyone else is going to go back and say to some supplier or some Walmart guy that they know, it's like, yeah, okay, we're talking 40, and I'm going to keep it at 40 for the most part. But for you, my friend, for you, just you, we are going to give you just a little discount. Just, you know, we're old friends with college roommates. We, you know, whatever. Um, we were in the same commune. Let's, uh, let's get together on this. So I'm going to give it to you for 38 bucks, and you will not get that deal from any of my other competitors. Now, of course, this crack in the wall is all that the potential purchaser needs to know because, of course, if you've got these five monopolies all protected by the state and <clears throat> everyone then says... Uh, one guy says, I'm willing to undercut this, then all you do is you go to the other guy and you say, I'm going to offer you 37 for this. And they say, no, 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 the price is 40. I'm standing firm with my brothers in crime and the price is 40 for these carpets. Well, this carpet, I guess, let's not get completely, let's go like, even further back in time. And then we know if somebody decides not to buy it from us for 40 bucks, that one of the other four guys is screwing us. Because, of course, if everybody's selling it at 40 bucks, then you can sell it for 40 bucks, and nobody's going to walk away from a $40 deal because they're not going to get anything better anywhere else. But the moment you say, oh, Mr. Purchaser, the carpet is 40 bucks, and he says, you know, I'll offer you 37 And you say, no, 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 the price is 40 bucks, and he walks away. You know exactly, he's going across the street to the other competitive guy, your former uh, brother-in-arms, and now your blood brother of betrayal, whatever bees that we can use as far as that goes. And he's going to go straight over that guy and offer him 38. Say, well, I couldn't get 37, so 38 is fine. So, the f and you also know what the competitor uh, is offering. Because, you said 40 bucks straight, 
this guy, uh, your competitor, has said, yeah, I'll give it to you for 38. Just trust me. We'll, we'll keep this on the, on the lowdown. I'll keep this on the QT. And so when this uh, vendor comes to you and says, I'll offer you 37, you know that it's less than 38. Uh, sorry, that it's 38 or more. That it's certainly more than 37. Right, because if the guy wanted to buy it for thirty-eight, then he would simply buy it from the competitor who's undercutting, undercutting your sort of supposed monopoly. So the fact that he's offering thirty-seven means that you instantly know. See, this is the amazing stuff that gets communicated through prices, right? You instantly know that you're being undercut by something more than thirty-seven dollars. So of course, if you say thirty-seven, the guy says, "You say, okay, I'm going to break ranks because this other guy screwed me." So I'm going to break ranks, and I'm going to go with this guy who's going to offer me 37 because, okay, it's still more than 20, which was my original cost, 25 with the political uh, shenanigans, so I'm still going to make good money. Now, of course, <laughs> the, the guy who's buying the carpets now knows that there's going to be a bidding war, and he's only going to benefit. So he's then going to go and say, back to the guy who offered 38, and say, okay, I'll give you 36. Right? And so this is exactly how stuff gets whittled down. And then the heads of the manufacturers are going to kind of get a, sort of scream at each other, right? They're going, to, they're going to get on the spittle-laced video conference call from hell, and they're going to be all screaming at each other. And, of course, each of the heads of these carpet manufacturers is going to say, Huh? Oh, no, it's not me. It's someone in my organization must have gone, you know, it's some old roommate thing. We'll, we'll, we'll tack it down. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of put our finger in the dike and we'll deal with this and we'll, you know, we'll staunch up the wound and we'll go back to 40 bucks, right? And, they'll, you know, they'll probably make some great show of trotting some guy out and firing him for something or other and, you know, he was undercutting or whatever. I mean, they'll do this sort of internally, right? Like the, the way that the mafia verify bodies, right? They don't sort of put them on eBay and say, hey, he's dead, right? So they'll do something like this. They'll, oh, now we stand together. We have rooted out all of the bad people who were undercutting us, even within our own organizations, for reasons that we knew not what for, and so on. And all this sort of smiles and air kisses all around. And then they go back to, and of course, exactly the same thing's going to happen again. The first guy to step below 40 makes a killing. And the first guy who steps below 40 has to then say to the a guy, look, I will sell it to you for 38, but you cannot go for a competitive quote. I will sell it to you for 38, but you have got to not go to my competitors because you wouldn't believe the amount of crap I get into when you go to my competitors and say 37 or whatever. So there has to be a secret agreement. Now, these secret agreements are pretty cool. I mean, just in terms of economic advantage because generally these secret agreements last for a certain amount of time, right? If you can get it for 38, and of course, if, if you don't buy it for 38, then they all get together on the spittle-laced video conference and yell each other back up to 40, and you have problems with delays and extra costs and so on. So you can get some of these subterranean pipes. Uh, uh, see how pipes work so beautifully with rolled-up carpets as a transportation device? So you get some of these subterranean rolled uh, pipes of, of carpet transactions going on and so on. And you know, there's constant stress and strain. And, and So it's a lot of work and it's a lot of problems. And, of course, you're now subject to the political process, so there's a lot of politics, which, you know, if it's not your cup of tea, is going to be pretty horrible for you. And most manufacturing people, if they wanted to be in politics, well, uh, they probably would have gone into politics. But, you know, they probably had a shred of self-respect that led them away from politics, which is now being whittled down to a fine toothpick about to be burst into flames. So the problem is that, that you just don't know what's going on. You're pretty sure that people are undercutting you, and you can figure that out based on your 
sales, right? So if you sell 10,000 carpets one month when everybody's at 40 bucks, and then you sell 5,000 carpets next month when everyone's at 40 bucks, but your competitor seems to be selling more, you're pretty sure that there's an underground pipe of, of uh, transactions going on that's below 40, but you can't prove it. And you might hire someone to go in and pretend to be like, it's an enormous amount of time and effort and waste, you know, like, why not just sell the consumer what they want at a decent profit and you want to let everyone do their own thing? So then you get to the final, the holy grail, the nirvana, shall we say, of corrupt and evil cabals of manufacturing mercantilists. Boy, this is, uh, what is that? Uh, oh, oh, man, I know this word. When everything is the, um, everything starts off the same. Uh, uh, oh, uh, it's, I'm thinking onomatopoeic, but that's when the sound is the same as the thud, right? The sound is the same as the whatever, right? So, oh, you know what, I'm going to get 12 emails about it and I'm going to thump myself on the head, so I can't remember it right now. But, um, uh, so you're going to get all of these guys who are going to finally achieve, if they can finally do it, they're going to get the Holy Grail, which is they are going to get the state to regulate pricing. They are going to have an open book pricing policy. They are going to force every competitor to publish the price not the book price, not the list price, but the price that they are legally going selling at. And you'll see all of this, right? You'll see all of this kind of stuff going on all the time. And it's always, you know, the appeal, the argument from morality, the appeal to the consumer. We need open pricing to protect the American consumer from gouging, and we need this, and we need that, and we don't want people, blah, blah, blah. And so what you get then is you start to... The first thing you get is open pricing. So people have to publish what they sold stuff for. And you, you can see this all throughout the 19th century whenever people in the States tried to get monopolies going. They always face this problem. So the, you, you want this open book pricing. And once you've got the open book pricing, then you can make sure that nobody's selling. And if they do sell, it has to be on the gray market, which has its own costs. You can't have court systems. You can't have open contracts. You you know, there's lots of uh, overhead in do, going in the gray market or the black market. So you've kind of nailed the problem. And then the last thing that you want is you want legislated pricing. So you want to go open book, and then you want to go legislated pricing. And then you don't have to worry about this cabal having to meet to set prices and you've basically got like dental work right everybody's got to charge the same and you can't sort of put in any reductions and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and some medical stuff was like this for a while and so everything then has a fixed price and then my friends you have arrived you have arrived you now have the license to print the money using the consumer's blood as your ink and you have achieved nirvana you have achieved absolute, predatory, parasitical, perfectly adapted, evil social organism status. And you're a happy guy. And this all lasts until the state collapses, right? You get maybe a generation of this, right? Before, uh, like once this becomes perfectly optimized, and it's pretty close to being optimized in, in the West for sure. And and so you get, you know, maybe a generation of this. And I don't mean a generation from now. I mean, I think we're no more than 10 to 15 years away from a significant reallocation of capital within society, let's say, which I think will be a fantastic and wonderful and good thing. And so you have arrived there. So let's just, you know, quickly go through the steps. Uh, not for padding, but, you know, it's worth a review and it's a challenge for me to think, uh, see if I can think of it. I can't think of that fourth thing and I can't remember that word that means the syllables at the beginning of every word sound the same. So maybe it'll come to me as I go forward. 
So the first thing you have, you all want to get together and collude. You've got to ban foreign imports, and then you've got to put the chill on domestic uh, production. Uh, you've got to get licensing going. You've got to get that licensing then transferred to your own organization. And then you've got to start getting uh, open book pricing. And then you've got to start getting legislated pricing. And then, oh, you have finally arrived at the place where you can print all the money you want and be as evil as you want. And, you know, you hear a lot about these robber barons in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, there's certainly some truth in that uh, these people, a lot of the people who did make these fortunes did do so through government coercion. And like a lot of railway lands were taken from government through government coercion and so on and subsidies and that. And a lot of fortunes, right? a lot of fortunes are founded on this kind of stuff because it really is a license to print money. Uh, it really is just winning the lottery every month for like 40 years. Uh, it's just, it's so much money, it's obscene, right? And of course, this is why people say, well, capitalism doesn't work because they look at this stuff and say, ah, it's capitalism, it doesn't work. When it's not capitalism at all. I mean, it's mercantilism, right? It's just state state. Fascism is actually the closest model, right? And fascism is the the public ownership of the right to use property with the private ownership of property, sort of nominally and handed over by the state and maintained by the state and all that. And so that's, I mean, that's really what people are talking about. And it's got nothing to do with the free market, nothing to do with anarchy, and there's precious little left of it in the modern world. But uh, don't worry, my friends, it will return. It will survive. So... Uh, don't don't worry about that. We're gonna we're gonna triumph. We're gonna do all the juicy, tasty anarcho-capitalist stuff that we can think of because we're getting these ideas out there. We're getting a great conversation going here. Everything that I'm saying is enormously fleshed out and prodded to greatness, to whatever greatness it contains, by uh, the people who write to me and the people who are on the board. So we will prevail. You know, the important thing is just to get the argument for morality out of these situations, to get the sentimentality out of these situations to get rid of the idea that there's anything to do with consumer protection out of these situations, just to recognize this stuff for what it is, right? It's just, it's mercantilist do-goodery, sort of under the cloak of do-goodery. It's mercantilist predations in the old sky, in the old style, where you used to have an empire that was overseas, and now you have a domestic empire that is composed of coolies, uh, also known as your fellow citizens, right? And this is class warfare at its finest, and class warfare is certainly not endemic to human nature. But it is absolutely endemic to a mercantilist system, right? Because, well, I mean, for reasons that I've just spent the last while, <laughs> quite a long time actually, uh, talking about. So, you know, in summation, there's really no reason whatsoever to worry about monopolies in a free market. I mean, there's just no reality to this threat at all. And the only time that we get monopolies is through the uh, harnessing of state power at the same time as you are offloading the costs of that enforcement to the general citizenry in the form of taxation. You're not going to hire your own border guards to patrol the Canadian border to stop people from shipping carpets over the border. I mean, that would never be cost-effective, right? Let's just compete openly. We already have an advantage because our carpets have to be transported fewer places. So... You're not going to be able. You're not going to hire your own border guards to do all of this. You're not going to hire your own inspectors, and of course, people aren't going to stop for them anyway. <laughs> you set up your little sort of Joe's Mercantilist House of Custom Inspections for carpets, then uh, you know people aren't going to stop. They're just going to say, uh, "Well, first of all, the guy who, who's got the private road is going to say, I don't think so, because if I allow people to stop for you, then my road is going to be really slow, and people are going to take my competitor's road or use the.'" Jean-Luc Picard teleporter, eh? 
or whatever, and so I'm not going to let you do it, so nobody's going to bother stopping. You can put up your flimsy little thing, but people are just going to drive right there. I mean, who's, who's going to care, right? I mean, you have to get the government to do these things. You have to get the government to, to enforce all these things. And so you're never going to want to do it from a private standpoint. I mean, regulations, if you come up with your own licensing scheme, I mean... <laughs> I tell you what, everybody, I've now created magically a licensing scheme for libertarian podcasts. So if you want to do libertarian podcasts, you have to pay me $500 a month. There's my licensing. I'm just going to wait for the checks to start rolling in. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Because, you know, if you give bad libertarian podcasts, you're setting back the cause of freedom, which could result in more people going to the library because they don't like podcasts, getting paper cuts, getting gangrene, losing their arm, and thus that is a workplace injury. So we need licensing to ensure the continued quality of libertarian podcasts. Because think of the poor people with their fingers. So you just, I mean, I can't do that, right? I mean, I can, but nobody's going to care or listen. They probably think it's funny. I hope you think it's funny. Uh, Is it funny? I think it's funny. So there's just, I mean, this licensing thing, nobody's going to listen to a bunch of carpet manufacturers coming up with their licensing unless they get the awesome and bloodied hand of the state to wrap around the throat of anybody who disagrees with them and then get those victims to pay for that to boot. So there's just no economic way that you're going to be able to get this kind of licensing and tariffs and inspections and keeping foreign goods out of your market and all that, I mean, they can come from anywhere. I mean, that's why you need the hand of the state to enforce this kind of stuff. And so there's just no way to be able to afford this kind of stuff in the absence of the state, right? So everything that we're talking about here, every single bit of evil economic trickery that we're talking about here is entirely predicated and absolutely requires the existence of a centralized state with a monopoly on physical force that is funded coercively by taxpayers. If you don't have that, none of these tricks are going to work. I remember the fourth one. Ah, okay. I'm not even going to try and go through the third one. The fourth one, about sort of how the consumer gets shafted, is that all of the goods that could have been produced by the money, the capital, the time, the labor, the focus, the everything that is being pushed into getting these sort of coerced state solutions is not available to the consumer. So everybody who's now a home, an inspector of carpet safety production or whatever could have been doing something useful that the consumer would actually want and that would have driven down the prices somewhere else or that guy might have invented a magic carpet that the consumer is not going to get anymore. And so the, the fourth way in which the consumer suffers is all of the misdirection of capital, labor, and energy that goes into getting everybody to obey this silly made-up nonsense about carpet licensing and all that, the consumer doesn't get all of those. There's all the opportunity costs, all the missed opportunity, and all of the stuff that was never created, the prices that never went down, all of the goodies that they never got a hold of because of all of this redirection of labor and energy into this other sort of nonsense. I mean, this is a huge cost, and it's a cost that can never be calculated. I mean, it just can't be calculated because you're trying to measure... Uh, the absent creation of something which could have been. I mean, you just can't do that. I mean, there's just no way. You can probably come up with something, right? Look at less regulated industries. Look at the growth of innovation and the growth of, of, of opportunity and the creation of jobs. Then look at more regulated industries and come up with some sort of rough measure. And I'm sure that's been done about a bazillion times by uh, people who are interested in libertarian economics. So I'm sure you can find those things. But it really is just abominable uh, what kind of stuff goes on. I mean, if you didn't have the FDA, I mean, we might have had a cure for cancer by now. 
I mean, if you didn't have uh, all of these health and safety regulations, we might have robots by now. I mean, you wouldn't have any possibility of people getting injured on the job, except maybe carpal tunnel syndrome while they play uh, Unreal Tournament while <laughs> watching the robots do their thing. So those opportunity costs are very important, very significant, catastrophic to the economy. I mean, you just can't measure this kind of stuff. But if you want to have a look at the real effects of opportunity costs in this kind of way, look at a situation where there was not this kind of capital optimization because of too many regulations and too many price controls and too many unions and too many this and that. And, you know, we'll call it basically all of human history up until the uh, early, late 18th, early 19th century. That's what society looks like when you don't have these kinds of opportunity costs, uh, sorry, when you have these kinds of opportunity costs in an omnipresent fashion. When capital, labor, energy, time, resources, and all are continually misallocated or non-allocated because of extensive regulation and state control and violence and so on. I mean, you have uh, 10,000 years of human beings living in absolute squalor and misery, even those who are supposedly at the top of the social heap. I mean, I'd rather be a homeless man in the modern world than uh, the king of France or Genghis Khan. Uh, you know, what's going to happen when you have a toothache? Or at least you can go free for, to a free clinic here, but there, you toast, or you're going to die. Or, you know, childbirth. <laughs> I mean, so 10,000 years of human misery is what happens when capital and resources and labor and all that get misallocated to that degree. And so even to a smaller degree, and this is why this stuff overwhelms the free market and destroys productivity, every amount of labor and energy and time and you know, all oh, human life spent lobbying and writing regulations and enforcing them and chasing people around. And ugh, it's just so depressing and so sad. And that's something which is just can't be calculated. But if you want to see the effects of it, just look at the Middle Ages. Look at human history. That is the effect of this kind of stuff. Absolute endless squalor. And the degree to which, you know, wages have stagnated or declined for the last 25 years is entirely around this. I mean, smart people are going into lobbying, are going into the government, are going into not improving their processes and improving their products, but into lobbying people to keep out competition. And that is just the calamity. I mean, if there was some alternate universe where this wasn't occurring, I wish we could visit there for like 30 seconds and just look through the yellow pages and see uh, the teleportation devices and see the uh, cures for cancer and see the cures for AIDS and see the cures for all of these sorts of things, which, you know, we just don't have right now because uh, these mercantilist pigs are taking advantage of the state, and it's the state's fault, fundamentally. I mean, you can't blame people for maximizing their economic advantage to some degree, even if it's uh, through evil things like uh, running the state. But... Um, you uh, you can certainly blame the state for existing and for everyone who supports it for continuing to support it. So I hope this has been enjoyable. Thank you so much for listening. And if you did enjoy the podcast, be sure to thank the rain because otherwise it would have been about uh, half the length. Thanks so much.